Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of the Sports Map podcast, where we are talking all things sports medicine, physiotherapy, rehabilitation, and return to performance. I'm your host, Nick Kane. We're really excited to welcome today's guest in Shane Kelly. Shane is the head physio for the British Athletics team. And we're going to do something a little bit differently today with Shane. We're going to present him with a case study of a calf injury to a track athlete. Shane then will take a step-by-step through his approach to managing this injury from the acute phase right back to competition levels. He's a really clear, systematic thinker, and I think you'll get some really valuable insights into how Shane operates on a day-to-day basis. Now, before we jump into today's chat with Shane, I encourage you to head over to our website at sportsmap.com.au, have a look at our upcoming events. We have the Advanced Upper Limb Rehab in Sport running in Melbourne from November 31st to the 1st of December. It will have a real emphasis on rehab, some fantastic workshops, discussions and presentations from five fantastic physiotherapists, um, all who have extensive range of experience at the highest level of sport. Then, of course, we have Edna King, who is the head of rehab at the sports surgery clinic in Ireland. He's making a trip out to Australia in February 2020 and doing two different events, one ACL, the other on athletic groin pain in three cities across Australia. So that's Perth, Melbourne and Sydney. Places are strictly limited due to the small class sizes, highly interactive sessions. So make sure you jump on there and have a look. You don't want to miss out on Edna on his one and only trip out to Australia. We are wrapped to have Shane on today's episode. Now, Shane is an Australian physio and he's been working with the British Athletics team for 10 years now. It was a fantastic chat about calf injuries uh, and I'm sure you'll take a lot away. So enjoy. All right, Shane, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Nick. Really great to be here. Mate, now it's uh, 9am over there in England. um, So we appreciate your time very much. Now you you are you're an Aussie you're an Aussie physio and you're working in the UK with British Athletics. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you end up working there? A little bit about your journey. I am an Aussie physio. Uh, for all your listeners out there who will be probably thinking almost immediately that guy doesn't sound like an Australian anymore. Um, and as you pointed out before, Nick, but um, yes, I, I am an Aussie physio working in the UK. I've been here for nine years now, and the whole time I've been working for British Athletics and been living in Loughborough. Um, my journey to get to uh, that point, or was to work for British Athletics, um, started out probably much, very similar to a lot of uh, sort of people listening today. You know, wanting to be involved in sport. You know, I was fresh out of uni in 2005. Didn't really want to do the hospital thing. Um, wanted to work in sport desperately. And for me, the only route to do that was really private practice and then supplementing that with a bit of sort of sports work on the side as, as, as you can. So, you know, I was doing the classic sports and spinal clinics, working a few private practices in Melbourne um, in the sort of eastern suburbs. You know, I had two or three part-time jobs, you know, doing my private practice stuff. And then on the weekends, I was doing amateur football cover. I was seeing my track and field mates in my clinic and I was doing a little bit of sports program, you know, school sports program therapy support as well. So that's how I started, you know, getting involved in sport. You know, they say throw your throw your hat in and everything you can early, volunteer, work for nothing, all that sort of stuff. And that's kind of what I tried to do. Um, 
after about three years of working private practice in Melbourne, sort of things started to pick up, you know, through my friends in track and field. And, and, and I had some friends that were, you know, very good athletes. Um, I started to treat them, as I said, in my private practice. And, you know, one thing led to another in terms of, you know, going away on trips, you know, sort of word or whatever got around to people in Athletics Australia. And I got given an opportunity to go away on a junior distance camp. And then another camp came up and then some cover came up. And, and that's kind of, one thing led to another to, to a point where actually, um, you know, uh, by 2007, I kind of quit my clinic jobs and decided to go full time working with some of Australia's and, you know, at the world, at time world's best athletes, you know, Steve Hooker and Craig Mottram. Um, I had been working with Steve for three or four years. By that stage, I was his traveling physio, uh, when he went to Europe for the European summer. And, but by, by 2008, I could, I could do that full time. And as I said, well, I wanted to do that full time. So in the lead up to Beijing Olympics, uh, for Steve and Craig, I thought, you know what, I'm going to quit my job and I'm just going to do this journey with them together with 12 month lead into, uh, Beijing. So that's what I did. And, um, had a fantastic year, lived out of a suitcase, was on the road through Europe, you know, America, all that sort of stuff. And then off the back of that work, got my AIS scholarship. So in 2009, I was the postgraduate scholar at the AIS. And that was a fantastic year. Probably one of the best years of my life, personally, professionally. It was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. Got to learn, work with some great practitioners. And then at the end of 2009, I was kind of looking for a job. You know, I had five years doing bits and pieces, um, but I wanted that full-time job in sport. And at the time, there wasn't really any full-time jobs in sport by the time I'd finished my postgraduate scholarship. So, you know, there was this one thing that was floating around and there was this job here at British Athletics, full-time therapist, in track and field, in, in, in London originally. And I thought, well, the only thing wrong with this job is that it's in the UK um, <laughs> and everything else about it was perfect. You know, it was full time. It was in track and field, the sport I love, the, the sport I had most experience. And I suppose just the temptation of um, being involved in a sport in the lead up to London 2012, you know, in, the, in that cycle, you know, to, to drop in it in 2010, two years before I thought, you know, that's, a, that's too good to pass up Shane and, you know, just have a crack for a couple of years and, and see what happens. And yeah, so that's it. Made the leap started in 2010 and I'm I'm still here today. It's nice mate. You sound like you've got a bit of a passion for the athletics. Were you an athlete yourself prior to that having had those mates doing that sort of thing? I was I was a hack athlete myself. Yeah, a very much club level athlete, you know, a jack of all trades. Uh, I was I was the guy, you know, club man that would turn up and do sort of eight events on a weekend and try and get points for the club. But um, I wasn't a specialist in any event and certainly not good enough to move on to sort of international level in any stakes. But, you know, athletics being the sport that it is, you know, you go to those club days and you are standing in a lane or rubbing shoulder to shoulder with someone like a Steve Hooker who's in the same pole vault competition than you and he's jumping two metres higher than you. <laughs> and, that, you know, you, you get to make uh, friends that way. And in terms of the Steve Hooker story, like um, 
he was my pole vault coach was up while I was trying to be a hacked athlete. So um, that's how I met him. What's a day in the life of a, a head physio British athletics look like? What's just give us a bit of a, a brief rundown on yeah, how the day operates and working with those athletes you have there. I, I am torn a bit, you know, constantly with sort of the administrative and leadership tasks that I have, but also just being mainly about clinical delivery um, and making sure our athletes are healthy and ready to train, you know, every day. If the, you know, if I was to generalise and, and talk about a, a typical day, you know, I, I get in generally a bit before nine o'clock and we start, you know, get around, speak to the therapists, speak to coaches, speak to whoever before the day really starts. Uh, and then by about 10 o'clock, most of our athletes are down on track training. And, and when they're training, I, I really try and make an effort to get down there. One, because I think being there to observe training is invaluable in terms of your clinical practice. Um, but, you know, there's, there's obviously some athletes and coaches that need you there as well. And you need to be there to observe, to discuss, to monitor, to make decisions around training, to provide inputs around training. So, yeah, we need to be trackside in the morning supporting our athletes that are there. So generally the morning goes from about 10 till 12. You know, that's the peak of the training time. And then by the afternoon, we're migrating upstairs to the clinic that we have just next to the track. And, um, and you know, it's generally meant to be about therapy and therapy delivery, you know, your recovery, your post-session monitoring, whatever else you do in the afternoon. So that's what an ideal day would look like, sort of track in the morning, therapy in the afternoon. But the reality with my role is I'm always trying to sort of crowbar and wedge in meetings and <laughs> and admin work and emails and phone calls and all the other bits of, of, of being head physio but um i, I uh, yeah I, th- I think i can i make it work moving on with some uh more clinical side of the uh, physio aspects today uh, we're going to try and do something a little bit differently uh to our previous podcast and that's trying to present you with a little bit of a case study and then work through how you would manage this sort of presentation how does that sound Sounds great, mate. Can't wait. Beautiful. All right. So you work in athletics. So at the moment, you have a, an elite 800-meter runner. Uh, he reports a gradual tightening up of his right calf towards the back end of a training session uh, during, say, a 400-meter run. At that, at that moment, he sort of ceases running, and he walks over to see you. Now, we'll get back to that uh, initial sort of clinical uh, assessment however if we fast forward two days he's had an mri and that mri is reporting a medial soleus strain uh, the lesion extends from the muscle into the medial intramuscular uh, tendon or proneurosis for, for the we'll call it an intramuscular tendon for the purpose of today's case study uh, the injury to the intramuscular tendon is four centimeters in length longitudinally and involves around 40 percent of the maximal tendon diameter so, therefore, classified as a 2C on the British Athletic Muscle Injury Classification System. Well done. <laughs> All right. Beautiful. So, there we have it. Now, uh, my first question I'm going to pose to you is, uh, based on this information alone, the athlete uh, has a very important meet in four weeks' time. Uh, do you think you can get him up for this? Uh, why or why not? Right. There are a few things in that, obviously, Nick. <laughs> first of all, if it was a very important meet, like say the world championships, needless to say, no matter what I thought, we try and give the athlete every opportunity to get back for that. Um, in the back of my mind though, with that scan result, knowing it's a 2C, my gut would say that 
the, the chances of them getting back ready to compete in four weeks are, are very slim. Um, and any attempt to try and get back in four weeks, you know, would be extremely high risk. I wouldn't say guarantee, but you'd be so uh, mindful of a recurrence in that sort of scenario. So I, I would say four weeks in this in this case for a track and field athlete wanting to get back to an 800 meter race, I think would be too short. Um, that's to say is, you know, just you, you mentioned, you use the wording, that information alone um, in terms of, you know, having an image and making a prognosis. Uh, I want to be really clear that, you know, that we don't prognosticate necessarily uh, off off imaging alone in, in British athletics. It's the clinical presentation as well, as well. It's the experience that we have. It's the, it's the knowledge of the events. And so knowing what it requires to get back to racing fitness for an 800-meter runner and the progression markers that they're going to have to go through um, to get back to that, Four weeks isn't going to be enough time, and that's really key is, uh, for the for the listeners and things like that. In terms of the BAMIC classification, we don't give you know it's not about giving timeframes to athletes from from day one from an MRI. You know, there's 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 more to it. You know, from the initial from the initial uh, clinical examination to the you know subsequent ones over and over again until the return to sport. All right, beautiful. So we're going back um, two days now. So that athletes just just walked up to you after uh, he felt that onset of calf pain what's it what's that sort of initial conversation and assessment look like for me uh knowing perhaps that the athlete had to pull out of the session early knowing that you know they're coming probably limping towards you uh you know you you always got to try and keep a game face you know you got to keep a professional outlook and you know at this stage i always try and keep an optimistic point of view in terms of well we don't know anything until you know proven otherwise and that sort of really helps the the sort of dynamic with with the athlete in terms of you know not panicking them from the start which i think is is important from a from just a an overall recovery perspective um but certainly you know if i didn't see that mechanism necessarily or i'd I'd heard about it or something i'd want to ask the athlete myself you know basically what happened so that'd be the first part of my assessment is, is the subjective you know, tell, tell, tell me what happened. And um, they'll talk about the, the gradual tightening. They'll talk about, you know, having to pull out of the session. Um, and for me, just from the subjective alone, if I've known that an athlete's had to stop a session, you know, can't continue running, they felt a tightening in a muscle sort of belly area. Um, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a clinician immediately suspicious of a muscle injury. And then I would go into my um, sort of objective or clinical assessment so for me the clinical assessment you know i do all the the quick clearing tests you know clear the spine clear the hip clear the foot and ankle fine great you know they're, they're all good but you know quite quickly with my suspicion being uh a muscle injury i'd want to get to a muscle specific assessment and the things you know i think we all all the listeners will know out there to really look for is, is kind of the three cardinal signs and the three cardinal signs for me are sort of pain on palpation, an awareness or pain on stretch, and an awareness or pain on contraction. Now, if you have those three things as the physio on the sideline or physio up in the clinic, you, you definitely, for me, need to be referring for a scan or an MRI. And at British Athletics, if there's any sniff of a muscle injury, we scan all our athletes anyway. So, you know... If, some clubs, whatever, don't have that option. Some clubs don't necessarily take that philosophy. But for us at British Athletics, 
if there's a suspected muscle injury, we'll always scan it. We'll always have an MRI and we'll always try and do our, our BAMIC classification of that muscle injury. Let's just say uh, the assessment is positive on those three signs um, and and now you have the MR. Um, for the case of, uh, for the point of this uh, case study, I guess, let's say it's a, you've given that prognosis, what would you say uh, roughly in weeks? What would be your estimate? Uh, as you know nick we all work in sport and the athlete no matter how hard you you might try to avoid it they all want a time they all want to know how long is it going to take it's going to be fine it's a 2c how long is it going to take um and us as clinicians have to have the answer somewhat and you know the the way that i would phrase it is always give a time frame rather than a specific time if you if you say six weeks, they'll say they'll take four. You know, in their head, um, uh, they'll always shave a bit off. Um, and also, the the other thing is to once you give them that time frame, it's about very quickly following it up with the key message of saying, as much as I've given you this time frame, your progression back to full training is going to be dependent on you making and hitting certain targets within your return to performance. And you've got to follow that up really quickly. And then you've got to keep drumming that message in about hitting your targets, hitting objective markers before progressing on and not necessarily about timeframes, but you know, if, if you want a figure, then that's what you can kind of expect. But it's more about what, how you perform in the rehab and you know, that's, and that starts now. So we have a diagnosis and we have a rough guide on our prognosis. What is your initial management with this person? Really key to our approach at British Athletics is the fact that we've got the MRI um, and we've identified this tendon involvement, you know, being the, the C part of the 2C would mean, you know, our early management would be perhaps considered by some a bit more cautious. Um, but fundamentally that that initial part in a, in, a, in a management of a C injury, whether that's 2C or 3C, is you've got to respect the tendon healing times. And as you know, tendon, tendons heal slower than mus, muscle. And therefore, the first couple of weeks generally is about allowing, giving the environment for that tendon to heal and remodel optimally. Um, basic healing of a, of a tendon, you know, to you know, some sort of completeness would be minimum three weeks obviously we can't wait three weeks before doing stuff um but you know in the background you've got to know that you know even week two and three into your initial rehab you know that tendon's still healing so there's limitations in terms of what you can do in that early phase but for me if you want to talk about acute phase you know the first say zero to 14 days the aims for me would be pain reduction swelling control, neuromuscular rehabilitation, some static strength work, proprioception, balance, change of surface stuff. Um, Gait re-education is pretty important in in a tendon injury and this person will be limping and walking awkwardly, walking with an antalgic gait for the first few days. Um, So getting that walking back is a really key marker early stage. you know, and in that early stage, well, they, well they, when they can't run, um, 
even for an endurance athlete or a middle distance athlete, then they're just going to be cross training the hell out of it. You know, they're going to be on the bike or in the pool or aqua jogging, you know, those sorts of things to keep their fitness up. Um, and then there's obviously the non-injured body area conditioning as well. So that, you know, even though they can't run, there is absolutely loads that they can do in that first couple of weeks to really respect that healing time and allow the, the, the tendon healing to, to start. And I, I would give it, you know, sort of a arbitrary figure, you know, cause everyone loves that as a physio of, of two weeks at the start. <laughs> nice. So let's um, maybe break down some of those early loading targets. Now you mentioned some neuromuscular and some um, early activation sort of work. What do, what do you do for that? The day of or the day after they've strained them, their, their calf on the track, you know, you, you know, they're going to be limping. They're going to be sore. Um, so you're not necessarily going to be loading them like in the gym right then on day between day zero to three. And I think from a neuromuscular perspective, you know, you could easily be getting them to do some TheraBand work on the bed, you know, plantar flexion, inversion, eversion, those sorts of things, neuromuscular control of the ankle. Um, certainly walking and gait re-education, I've mentioned in those first few days is key. And, and you know, to help that along, uh, you might need to put a heel wedge in uh, in those first few days just to facilitate a little bit of uh, easier heel contact. Once you get a, once the uh, gait pattern starts to improve, uh, you're moving sort of, again, just sort of guessing, depending on the person, like day three to five. Um, and you want to move maybe more to body weight resistance work body weight loading at that point you know that they're starting to become pain-free walking or very minimal pain well let's obviously that's that's moving body weight well let's try and do that you know in a targeted way um and you might move to double leg body weight calf raises into single leg body weight calf raises um and so yeah loading concentrically and eccentrically with body weight off the floor in those early days from sort of day five onward will be enough but also you know you could do some specific loading of gastroc or soleus with seated calf raise or with a long long leg leg press in the gym if you want to go into some sort of fatigue elements as well um for me in that first two weeks the other whether you call them loading strategies or whatever but certainly stimulus for the calf and the healing area would be things like sand pit walking in the sand pit toe walking so walking on your toes uh, you know in all the variations of that some foot intrinsic work and some proprioceptive and balance work as well so you know it's not resistance purely but it is load and stimulus for that healing calf which is really what's needed i think yeah nice you mentioned uh, foot intrinsic so you um obviously value that in this type of rehab how, how do you sort of or what do you go to key exercises for that how do you cue that I do love foot intrinsics. Uh, I do think ignore the foot at your peril. Um, the foot is obviously a massive part of the foot, calf, ankle complex. Um, you know, anything for, yeah, from the knee down, the foot, calf and ankle are intimately linked anatomically, functionally. So if you've got this one, you know, one key lever at the bottom of this biomechanical system being the foot, you know, being almost like a weak link, I think, again, you, you, you're potentially setting yourself up uh, for failure in the future or continuing having an underlying injury, injury risk in the future. Things for me to look at, intrinsic foot fun, function, I, I personally love to get really 
down into isolating certain movements of the toes, you know, what's the FHL function, what's the interossei function, what's the lumbrical function. I look at toe abduction, adduction, extension, flexion, and and then how that all ties in as a group in terms of, you know, being able to form a stiff arch, a stiff longitudinal arch of the foot. Now, if an athlete's really injured, I'll, you know, and, and, and offloaded early, I'll start them doing foot intrinsics, sitting off the side of the bed and doing sort of toe gymnastic type exercises. But as soon as they can get onto their feet, you know, I'd be doing a lot of that stuff in standing and still doing toe gymnastics or whatever, and, and then also some doming exercises. But then moving, you know, once you get the stiffness and that, and that medial longitudinal arch stuff really dialed in, applying that into calf raise maneuvers is a real key for me yeah you've got to and focusing again talking to the athlete about using their foot as the stiff lever for push off which is exactly what happens in running so you should be doing that with your calf raises as well so again when you're doing simple bodyweight calf raises in those first day one or week one or two you're already talking about returning to running and what the foot does and how important it is and um and re-educating the foot's role in running. So you're using your intrinsics in your calf work and they're walking pain-free and things are, are progressing nicely past that initial sort of stage. Do you, do you, do you have any early targets around calf capacity um, with either bodyweight calf raises or uh, any loaded work before you, say, progress to that next level? Absolutely. I think uh, there's a couple we use. Uh, certainly calf capacity, uh, we like to think the gold standard is uh, 30 single leg calf raises. We, we we try and keep things relatively tight. So we use a metronome. We do it off the side of a of a ledge. We use uh, you know height height marker, and yeah, you got to do 30 good quality calf raises, and they've got to be good quality. And you know that's a key for me is is watching how the athlete does it. it the danger is just trying to hit that number, but they're basically bouncing off their tendon or something. That's not good <laughs> calf racing so calf capacity but done well yeah 30 plus for us um then we look at maybe heel raise height so a single heel raise uh heel raise as high as you can and a measurement from the heel to the floor um i think that gives a good indication of soleus function and the ability of the soleus to pull the uh calcaneum into the back of the joint um, and if you can't get full plantar flexion with body weight, then that is a concern. Um, and I'd be looking at that left to right. Um, sometimes we do a soleus hold where the athlete is bent knee, single leg, holding their heel off the ground and trying a soleus hold for a minute. So that's almost like a clinical endurance test. Um, and then, uh, yeah, heel raise height, capacity, and the soleus hold are probably our clinical strength markers. Not one that we use lots, but I think is a suggestion would be maybe in the gym looking at, say, an 8RM, you know, straight leg calf press um, on the good side and then having that as your baseline and then trying to replicate that on your affected side. Um, and if you have those four to, sort of three or four markers before moving on to your dynamic phase, uh, then I think, you know, that's setting you up well for the next phase, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. 
right, I'll just um, touch back onto a couple of those little things. When you do the heel raise, um, how do you determine, is that just maximal height you can get and then you're making sure they get that height every repetition? Just It is just a one-off, see how high you can get and hold it. You know, we measure the, the from the from the base of the calcaneum to the floor with just a, a standard sort of measuring tape. Um, the comparison is left to right. Obviously, you're comparing the affected side to the non-affected side. Um, but for me, the subtle stuff, uh, and this is where as therapists we we earn our money, is how they got there, and the things you got to really look for with a st- with just a static calf raise like that is 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 the athlete. Um, plan affecting through their first ray. Are they things that you don't want to see is, you know, that their ankle is going out laterally and they're sort of almost plantar flexing through their perineals or something like that. So it's got to be a, a good quality calf raise where the ankle is going forward. They're plantar flexing through their first ray and you can see that the heel is is like fully up into the back of the of the of the tibia and and that they're able to hold that really strong and, and you know you can see you'll be able to see it if they're not able to do it and not able to do it in a really strong and almost deliberate way so there is a bit of subtlety and subjectivity to the assessment as well there's the objective measurement but there's the subjective quality and kinematics how did they get there all right so once their their capacity level is at, at the required level and you think their, their form is sufficient, you're able to move them on to the next stage, which may be a little bit more dynamic. Um, what does the next stage of loading look like for you? You want to make sure before dynamically loading that you have the necessary strength qualities required uh, to move on to a dynamic phase. So we did talk about sort of like the strength. You want just basic strength in the gym to be the same. So that 8RM sort of measurement could be could be useful um you know but uh also at that stage with with some of our athletes we might lean on the snc boys a bit in terms of use of strength diagnostics and get some indirect measures of you know low uh, of the ability of the calf to produce elastic energy um and you could use things like the isometric press or the, the counter-movement jump or the drop jump or the repeated hops. So some of the tests that we use to sort of get a baseline for how the calf is functioning in an elastic way. So if you've got a little bit of that data, early stage rehab, and if you've got a little bit of the clinical data, then you can feel more confident to push on to the next phase, which would be sort of more pure strength dosages of six to eight reps and really trying to uh, address any asymmetries, but also maybe even improve calf strength uh, bilaterally. And at that same time, start as you suggested, Nick, starting to really introduce gently some dynamic work and some of the things we use early doors to low-level dynamic work. You know, we, we think about initially vertical um, ground reaction force production uh, um, and, and dealing with that. So it's be basically hopping on the spot, baby plyos, you know, starting with sing, double leg, then moving to single, um, skip rope, you know, the classic just skipping. Um, and then also, yeah, just, just, just as I said, hopping on the spot. So those sorts of things, uh, early days to sort of how is that athlete using their elastic energy, you'll be able to see that uh, and, and push for that, you know, from sort of around two weeks onwards. 
So um, you mentioned just around looking at drop jumps, counter movement jumps uh, with some of your assessment. What exactly would you be looking at with your drop jump and counter movement? Are we looking at uh, reactive strength, power, etc.? First of all, to say that we, we do rely heavily on our uh, on our S&C guys to get a lot of that information for us, and we, we, we rely on their expertise in terms of what we're looking at specifically. Um, but, you know, I am able to sort of share, you know, my experience working with the guys is that, um, you know, we do look at a lot of things. We do look at those sorts of parameters uh, or qualities of reactive strength index, flight time, contact time, um, it's sort of an elasticity measure, peak power, eccentric rate of force development. There's a number of metrics you can look at, and this is where it gets really tricky, Nick, is what's actually important. And I think for the word of warning with the strength diagnostic stuff is, you know, if you're going to use it, you've you got to really know what you're doing and what you're looking for. And it's not just about achieving numbers. Um, so we could give you absolute values for RSI, you know, for a single leg hop. Um, but there's there's lots to it, than, more than just the number. It's about how the athlete achieved that number and, and is that part of their story. So it's really key that if you're going to use strength diagnostics on an athlete in a rehab context, ideally you would have had some baseline data on them initially in a healthy state and you know what their normal is for that time of year ideally for that time of week even um and that you're comparing them generally with themselves and you know you know what their normal sort of force trace sort of looks like um because there can be lots of individual confounding variables as to how someone gets a 1.6 or something rsi um so you've got to consider individual athlete characteristics and the time of season of the testing you know, the kinematics in terms of how it looks as well when they do the test because some athletes, you know, they can be symmetrical in a number, but, but actually it just doesn't look right if they're hopping. So, yeah, in terms of there's lots of numbers you can look at, but you've got to be sure that it's related to that athlete, and that's generally my, my word of advice around the sort of use of strength diagnostics. It's not just about the number. It's about looking, looking what that athlete's done in the past and comparing it to their story and where they are. We're up to, we've moving through our early capacity work. We've done some good strength work. We've started off doing a little bit of dynamic work with our skipping um, and those other surgeries you mentioned. When is this athlete going to run and what do you need to see from this athlete before you start running him? Obviously, it's um, not just a, a straightforward question, but to get an idea of when they could be running again or return to full training, you need to work backwards in terms of what they normally do. Um, so if this athlete, middle distance athlete, runs 50 miles a week, then uh, you've got to sort of think about, well, I want to get them to 50 miles a week. How, how quickly and safely can I get there? And it is a bit uh, a bit of a arbitrary sort of calculation as to, you know, how quick if you've got five weeks and you want to get them to 50 miles, that's 10 miles a week progression, and then it's sort of a discussion of, of is that, that sensible progression? Would they normally be able to tolerate that? Does it fit in with sort of acute chronic workload ratios? Um, and then obviously through that whole period in trying to get them up to 50 miles a week or whatever, you're, you're 
your decision to continue to progress is based on your continual clinical assessment and monitoring of how the calf is pulling up. So you add a bit of running load, you assess the next step, the day or the next day. Yeah, that's fine. Okay, we move on again and again and again. So, you know, it, it it's a very rough figure at the start, but, you, you know, from some sort of picking about picking or knowing where they've got to get to, you can sort of roughly calculate how quickly your trajectory can be towards that. This episode of the SportsMap podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU, which was recently acquired by Viacon. Used by leading biomechanic researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, iMeasureU recently released IMU Step, which is a dual sensor lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. It's unlike GPS in IMU Step focuses on lower limb musculoskeletal load by two small synchronized high frequency tibial worn sensors which quantify three main things. The intensity of every step an athlete takes, precise left and right limb load asymmetry and cumulative tibial load. I measure you works in military, pro and college coaches and athletes from around the world including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defense and Harvard University. If you want to know more about how I measure you can help optimize return to play for your athletes, head over to their website imeasureu.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureu. Is there one key thing or a couple of things that uh, allow you to be confident that they can tolerate the first run you prescribe? So what do you need to see before you give them that very first run? Yeah, before the very first run, it's kind of the stuff that we, we talked about, you know, that all, the, all that first acute phase stuff is in order, the capacity, the, the strength, whatever. Um, I'd want to see their ability to hop. You know, if, if we had no strength diagnostics equipment, we had no force mats, no force plates, you know, they've got to be able to do hops and repeated hops, which is what you've hopefully already done in your early, you know, your mid-stage rehab. You've had them hopping on the spot. You've maybe had them hopping side to side, hopping forward. Those sorts of things I'd want to see in the clinic. To give me some confidence that uh, that you know that first running session is going to go well, um, and obviously when you've had them hopping in the rehab in that early stage, that they not reacted adversely to it either during or immediately after or the day after. So those are the sort of things I want to see. I'm just a clinician trying to rehab this guy. That you know they've got to be able to hop on the spot, hop forward, hop sides before thinking about well I'm going to start running or drilling or dribbling this guy. What's that first running session typically or what would this first running session look like for this particular injury, do you think? I think the temptation would be, well, let's just get them jogging first session. And for me personally, I I don't like jogging uh, as, as almost a, a rehab exercise. I think the first session, now that they've been hopping with no issues, would be to actually get them to sort of dribbling. Um, and dribbling for the people that are listening and don't really know that what it is, it's kind of a, a, a modified running drill where the athlete is upright, you know, their fit, foot's dorsiflexed and they're moving, you're moving your feet in a circular motion and making short contacts with the ground. And sometimes those circular motions can be quite short, but the dribbling, the dribbling sort of progresses you forward in a, in a modified running fashion. And generally, if you're really almost scared or, or, or cautious as a, as, a, as a practitioner, you get them doing really low-level dribbles and just dribbling over their ankles, as it's called, 
and dribbling over, say, 30 to 50 metres and seeing how that goes. And that that would almost be my my first running session, sort of a really classic uh, return to running protocol is like 10 by 50 metres. So you could do 10 by 50 metres of dribbling. And again, you, you know, you wear, you wear this in pitch side, track side, whatever. You're looking at how they're doing it. You're asking them between the reps how they're feeling. Um, and if they've hit that, then they've obviously done 500 metres of you know, dribbling. Uh, and that's your sort of baseline to sort of set your progression for your running from there on in. Sometimes if you're feeling more confident, though, um, and, and depending on your athlete and clinical assessment, again, you might go a dribble into a, into a stride where they dribble initially for about 10 metres. And as they get more confident, they open up their stride and then they finish the rep, you know, up to 50 metres. By that stage, they're fully running. So that's my first session. It's either all dribbling or dribble into a stride. And I generally go for 10 by 50 metres because it sets a good volume uh, in terms of running uh, and a good amount of time to get feedback and reaction as well. So that's my typical sort of first session. Beautiful. So from that first session, um, you're going to obviously you need to follow on with those um, follow-up sessions. How do you periodize then when the athlete's going to be running again? So days on, days off, et cetera. And how does that work in with um, any other work you're still doing? Are you still doing some of that capacity work? Are you still doing some skipping base work? Um, how does that all fit together? In athletics, I think it's slightly, it might be the same in other sports, but definitely in athletics, obviously you've got different coaches with different philosophies um, and different programs. So how we approach it uh, with even with uh, different 800-meter coaches could be quite different and in terms of how they structure their normal week. Because ideally what we do, even though they're very low level in terms of running volume and intensity, we'd want to keep the running days the same. So if they normally run fast, let's say, on a you know have a track session on a Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, then that's how I would structure their rehab. It's based on their normal training, you know, because obviously the speed exposure is probably the most risky one and the one that you want to have the most uh, recovery from um, and Tuesday Thursday Saturday fits quite nicely in terms of you know it's day on day off that's their normal thing and they feel like they're part of the group and they and the coach is going to be there and all those sorts of things so that's really important in a track and field context is if we can we'll put the running days on what is normally their running day um, and then we fit all our bits around that in terms of the conditioning and, and all that if we're loading heavy I will always try and put the heavy loading on the same day as the as the as the speed day or the or the or the, or the fast running day. So that would be uh, sort of my sort of initial setup. You know, periodization of 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 a, of a thing is based mainly on what they already do in their normal program. But if their normal program is they run fast every day, which is <laughs> probably why they got interested in the first place um then you know it's a discussion with the coach about you know having lighter days and you know heavier days in terms of running volume and intensity um but yeah i would start with speed and normally 48 hours apart and then once you want to get your volume running in like your your jogging and your longer runs in they they happen on the days in between what type of volume would this sort of athlete do weekly that you'd need to get them back to doing this sort of thing for for an elite 800 meter runner a common sort of mileage 
uh, for an 800 meter runner is 70 miles a week. I would say that, but that's on, on the higher side, you wouldn't get many 800 meters. You're probably looking anywhere for an elite under 800 meter runner, anywhere between 50 to 70 miles a week, which is anywhere between 80 to 110 kilometers a week. So that's the, that's kind of what you're aiming for. Do you think fatigue would play a role during your rehab prescription? Do you, do you tie that into maybe what type of running you prescribe on those volume days, building them up to that sort of jogging-based running? How do you do that? The 800-meter guys are really tricky, and I think they're probably similar to soccer players and, and AFL players as well, is that they're kind of that they've got to, they can have a bit of speed, um, but they've also got to be really fit as well, and they've got to be able to have some – be able to tolerate running kilometers. So it is a bit of a – bit of an art about how how and when you get that volume in um as i said i'd still put the speed stuff in first the dribbling the striding and 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 return to running first and then start to sort of fit in the jogging lower lower threshold miles miles work on the days that are lower now as you mentioned the danger is fatigue because they they're literally running they're going to start running every day you know speed day one day then down into a, a job day the next day and then speed day job day and there's no real kind of break for the calf you know and and and, and the central system as well well so this is where your daily assessment becomes so important you know your clinical assessment and then within that week two to four when they're just getting back on to their, their running you know i think the physio still needs to be fairly heavily involved to be able to monitor those reactions you know the local reaction to the calf your daily assessment of that but also just looking at the athlete and your your wellness monitoring and all that to just get an idea of overall recovery absolutely agree nick the danger here is you know they get too seen and they've been running every day literally um and they've not had a day a day off or something you're you're blind to the fact that your athletes digging themselves into a hole then that's when you uh danger of having a recurrence is, is that fatigue but being a experienced clinician, you're wise to that. You're 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 monitoring for that, and you're looking for that signs of fatigue because you are going to push them, um, but you've got to know when to back off as well. And and w- what are you doing to assess that fatigue? And everyone's different in terms of what they do there. Your monitoring procedures, uh, anything uh, that you really use from a clinical aspect. So you're more just looking at range of motion and tone, or is there uh, other things that you really hone in on? It is that sort of uh, things probably everyone knows out there. You know. Tone, palpation, pain on stretch, pain on contraction, you know, doing a calf raise, doing a hop, all these things, you know, with, with no increase in awareness um, and, and with the same sort of level of quality and the same level of confidence. And that's specific to the calf. But then you also just, as I've mentioned, looking at the athlete overall and are they looking drained? Are they looking fatigued? And there are ways that you can monitor that, you know, more objectively with your wellness measuring and things like that. So I think, you know, you've got your clinical assessment specifically for the calf. And then you've got your more general overall sort of fatigue measurements and wellness measurements. And and that's what you need to sort of base your decision making on going forward through the phases. Yep. Now, you mentioned the acute to chronic workload ratio. Do you, um, I, I guess, one, do you think that offers uh, a lot of value to you at the British Athletics in a general point of view, and then um, I mean, do you really follow that concept at all in your rehab? And and if you do, yeah, what weight do you give it? Really good question, Nick. Um, I think we 
obviously we're all aware of it and Tim Gabbett's done some fantastic work he's even presented to us a couple of years ago um so and I and I, and I like Tim and I think the work is is excellent um uh but that said things sometimes in athletics are slow to get taken up um and so as a rule right now we don't necessarily use it uh strictly uh in our rehab context i think it's something that the, all of us as practitioners do in the background to say, is this progression too steep? Um, and you can figure out your ratios ahead of time or whatever in terms of what you want to achieve. But what we don't do is go to the coach or the athlete and say, your ratios, you know, 3.0 or whatever for the next two weeks, you've got to stop or you've got to change it. Um, it's It's more about, the, the acute chronic stuff is one part of our decision-making. It's not the only thing. Actually, I think if you start talking acute chronic ratios to some track and field coaches, they kind of wouldn't know what you're talking about. So you, you could be wasting your time. Um, I think, again, the bigger thing is it's almost a historical thing is about, you know, setting up the week, as we talked about before, in the background, we as clinicians might do an acute chronic sort of calculation just to check when things aren't too crazy. But, you know, it's nothing we can go firmly to the athletes and coaches with yet at this stage. Now, I will just touch on speed progressions a little bit. You, we talked about having good recovery from uh, exposures to speed. Um, I think it's probably a really intricate way I think uh, you guys progress your athletes in athletics with speed, probably more so than your, your field-based sports. Um, can you give us a bit of an idea on how you how you do that over time, how you monitor it, and what would a, what would a typical increase in speed look like session to session or week to week? This is something there for everyone, really. Like, if everyone's got two cones and, and, and a stopwatch, um, and initially for a return to running, that's kind of all you need in terms of tech. Um, so, let's say we've just got this athlete through um, this dribbles or stride session, the first one, 10 by 50 meters. Uh, again, it's just through experience, arbitrary number. We want to, you know, we want to run. Uh, 10 seconds through 50 meters, you know, which is going to give you a 20 second, 100 meter time. That's your 20 second, your PB is now 20 seconds for the 100 meters, which as you know, is, is kind of slow. Um, and that's why I like 50 meters because basically the calculations of speed can be really quite easily done from that with your stopwatch. And you know, as the weeks go on, you, or the day or the sessions go on you can shave your you know get that 10 seconds for 50 meters time down to you know nine and a half to nine to eight and a half and obviously they're, they're developing that speed over time um the sort of rough progressions from my experience would be you know about a second to a second and a half a week so you know if they start at 10 10 10 seconds for the 50 meters and they, they do that three times, then the next week they'll come back. You can take about a second to a second and a half off, and they can do that, and they do that three times in the following week. They tolerate that well, and then you do a second to a second and a half off the following week. So you do that four times. And obviously, you, you've taken, you know, anywhere between you know, six, six to eight seconds off in that time, and they're running 12, 12 seconds for the 100 metres, and, and that's probably around the speed you need to, Declared, you know, back to close to full training. 
So when it comes to the point about saying, okay, well, this, this player, this athlete or player, depending on what sport we're in, is now ready for full competition, um, full training. Is there anything else you really need to see from that person or are you just, uh, as in, let's say, final tick-off tests or are you just happy to say if, if you've hit top speed and all your capacity markers are there, now he's good to go? I guess my question there is, do you, do you have a final sort of test or, or capacity level that you really need to see to be satisfied this player's completed rehab? Yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of things. Um, and what I you know, obviously should have said from the start is, is I'm not just the only person involved in this in this whole rehab scenario. From the start, we have the coach involved. From the start, we generally have S&C involved um, and the doctor as well. And, you know, any decision uh, to move forward, any changes in the rehab, you know, it, it's, it's all done as a team. And it's the, the, in terms of rehab and return to play, it's very much a multidisciplinary approach at British Athletics. So the decision to return to play is a shared one right at the end, and it's an informed one. And everyone brings in their piece of the puzzle. So the clinicians bring in, you know, their clinical findings, their observations from training. The S&C guys bring in, again, their observations from training, but also their strength diagnostics data. The coach brings in his technical stuff and what he's seen from the return to running and what he knows is good for that athlete. We sometimes uh, bring in Biomech as well, and they provide that real high-end running analysis and giving you some really detailed parameters about what this athlete's had hit. So if I was dealing with a, say, sprinting athlete, but even a high-level middle-distance athlete like this endurance runner, um, the perfect, perfect multidisciplinary, everyone-engaged scenario would be you know, the clinician saying he's healthy, the doctor saying he's healthy and he's not fatiguing and he looks like he's responding well to rehab so far. So that's the doctor and physio sort of doing their bit. The S&C guy saying he's great in the gym and strength diagnostics markers have improved and they're symmetrical or they're, they're, they've met his baseline or exceeded it. Um, the coach is saying, I've seen him train. He looks technically brilliant. He looks like he's recovering well. And, you know, he's done this max speed session now two or three times. I'm confident that that's a full return to training, you know, and that's more in general principles what we'd like to see. If we wanted to get really technical, though, you could you could say have a baseline of zero to 30. So what are they like accelerating from from zero meters a second? Sorry, from zero meters to 30. What's their acceleration sort of profile look like? And also their upright running max velocity profile, say flying 30 meters um, and, and sort of the time and some of the higher end running parameters around that, the flight time, contact time, stride lengths and all those sorts of things, which which we can get to and do sometimes use with our um, running rehab, but not every single time. But certainly there are definitely some key objective markers and a, and a team approach to how we do things. Um, and that's kind of the flavor of, of how we do it. Um, last question on the calf case study is, um, I guess, just covering off, is there anything else, uh, any other factors that, you know, should be considered uh, that we haven't really talked about here, whether that's adjunct, adjuncts, uh, footwear selection, et cetera, um, that you would, you know, bring into play with this type of athlete and this injury? Um, I, I thought about this a little bit, uh, obviously. Uh, I mentioned the use of a heel wedge earlier. I think that's really useful. Uh, in terms of an adjunct, which could help early stage rehab and just uh, getting back onto feet quickly with um, correcting that antalgic gait. Then uh, 
sort of other things to think about throughout the whole um, rehab and return to running phase is that we haven't really talked about acceleration. And I think for any running athlete, for any based athlete, acceleration is such a key quality and skill. And as much as we're trying to build up miles or build up speed tolerance, the acceleration phase, the bit that gets you from static to high-speed running, is just as important as high-speed running itself. And often we spend all our time worrying about how many miles and how fast he's going, not how they got there. And actually, acceleration is probably one of the riskiest things in terms of a calf strain and generation of power to create locomotion. And acceleration is a skill in itself and has completely different demands on the calf, ankle, foot complex than does upright running. Well, you know, yeah. So I again say ignore acceleration at your peril. I would, I would recommend that as you're doing and retraining upright running, and, and, and building tolerance to speed and volume, you need to be coaching and building an acceleration, the ability to accelerate again. And yeah, you, you could be missing a whole trick there in your calf rehab if you're not looking at acceleration itself. That's interesting, uh, and it's good that you've brought that up. In, and I guess just to touch on that a tiny bit more is um, how do you bring that into the rehab early? Is it is it using things like prowler pushes and etc. Or are you sleds, or are you just um, training that in a track track session sort of setup? Obviously, initially you want to uh, coach and promote acceleration positions, but without the speed. So having resistance in the form of a prowler pusher, in the form of sleds, pulleys. You know, your coach holding you back with a TheraBand, using a wall statically, trying to hit acceleration positions against the wall, you know, and, and playing around with those things, you know, playing around with uh, resistance, with surface, uh, with speed, with amplitude, with different chin angles, different torso postures. All those things in that early stage to re-excel is really important. And again, like you could be, you could be, rehabbing acceleration even in that first two weeks while you're waiting in the tendon to heal because it is a functional task um and it's not very dynamic um so i think you know you can start your excel read quite early you know even statically against the wall and trying to hit positions so yeah that's how you would do it we would start with even something like a a three-step acceleration or even a one-step acceleration you know like try your first step out of the box, just pop out one one stride and catch yourself. And then two steps and then move to three steps and obviously progress on from there. So, yeah, that's how you would progress it when it hits the dynamic phase. Nice, mate. I'm really glad you brought that up about the acceleration. Um, but we've certainly gone over time with our podcast today on chatting about calf injuries. I'm sure we could keep talking. Um, but uh, I guess to sort of finish off with a, a question a little bit more about you, um, and who you sort of look to learn off and who are your key influences in your career? Who are, who are some names that you felt have really guided you along your pathway? Oh, uh, mate, I, I appreciate every boss that I've ever had. Um, but really, I think uh, some some names that I need to mention in terms of my development were, were a lot of the therapists that were at the AIS um, back in 2009. So ones that hopefully everyone would know or does know back in Australia, you likes of Craig Purdom and Peter Blanche and Flo Guchlag and Ivan Hooper, 
you know, those were some, and Martin Wallen, those were some of the guys that were, that I got to work with in that year, which was just amazing. And then moving to the UK, obviously worked with some brilliant practitioners here, British athletics. Um, Craig Ranson's been a mentor of mine, Ashley Wallace, who works in the EIS system. But then from a research and sort of practically applied point of view right now, guys that I'm, I'm loving, Jordan Mendiguccia and JB Moran, they do a lot of stuff to do with high-speed running. And obviously that's where I spend most of my time and I'm really interested in, in, in what they're doing from a research perspective because I think they get the blend of research and applied yeah, quite well, perfect. So I, I, I like it when they bring out anything new. Love that, mate. We also love our George Meneguccia, having uh, had him out earlier this year. And um, there's some good content from JB Moran on our website that I can direct uh, listeners to later. But, mate, uh, really appreciate your time. It's it's we've gone we've gone over time. It is nice and early there at the start of your day. But, mate, it's been a pleasure to have you on board, and um, yeah, we appreciate it. So, thank you. Uh, thanks a lot, Nick, for the opportunity to speak, and I hope for there's been something interesting and useful for listeners and something that can start playing around with from tomorrow champion thanks mate